This is the My Faith Votes podcast. I'm Jason Yates. In My Faith Votes, we encourage you to pray unceasingly for our nation, for our leaders, to think biblically, not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but biblically about the issues of the day, and to vote, vote in every election. My guest today is an expert in the Middle East. Having worked as a campaign advisor to Benjamin Netanyahu, he's met with world leaders, and he has a strong understanding of the complexities of the Middle East. What makes Joel Rosenberg so interesting is how he takes his knowledge and packs it into action-packed, best-selling spy novels. With five million copies in print, he knows how to tell a good story. This is an important conversation about foreign policy, religion, elections, and yes, spies. Let's get into it with Joel Rosenberg. I am really thrilled for the opportunity today to engage in conversation with someone with an incredible um, background, history, and someone who's communicating all of that through um, book writing and novels. And Joel Rosenberg is an author. He is um, a best New York Times bestselling author of 16 novels and five nonfiction books um, with nearly five million copies um, in print today. He's Rosenberg's uh, career as a political thriller writer. He was was born out of his filmmaking studies at Syracuse University. Um, he also studied at Tel Aviv University during his junior year. And following graduation at Syracuse, he moved to Washington, D.C., and, and there he got involved in some political campaigns. He worked with Steve Forbes as a campaign advisor. He's also been a political consultant to Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, and now he is dedicating his time to uh, book writing, also his nonprofit ministry called the Joshua Fund. We'll learn a little bit about that. But I am just thrilled to welcome Joel Rosenberg to an interview. He has recently come out with a new book. It's called The Beirut Protocol. And this book is incredible. I got a chance to read it all the way through. And let me tell you, this is a fast-paced, authentic spy thriller. It's a page turner where the protagonist is captured near the Israeli-Lebanon border, dragged into enemy territory, tortured, and um, and meanwhile, the whole backdrop of what's happening in the Middle East with Iran and Turkey and Yemen and um, so many things happening, Saudi Arabia, all the tensions in that area wrapped around this protagonist being captured in enemy lines. It's a page turner. I love it. I love um, his writing and welcome Joel Rosenberg. Thanks for being here. And what a powerful book this is. I, I was just thrilled to have it and read it. Tell us a little bit more about the plot, if you would, and, and the backdrop of that. Well, happy to do so, Jason. Thank you. And uh, shalom and greetings from Jerusalem. Uh, thrilled to be with you guys at uh, My Faith Votes. Uh, speaking of voting, I, some of, one of the topics I know you want to touch on is that we've got another election coming up here. Um, yeah. And uh, we, we are, you know, Israel is the only real democracy 
in the Middle East. And uh, apparently we love democracy. We love elections so much. We've had four rounds in two years. So uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, yeah. you were very gracious, Jason, as you did that introduction, not to describe me as a, as a failed political consultant. But that's actually what I am. I mean, you said, did I work for Steve Forbes? Yeah, I, I helped him lose two presidential campaigns and about $70 million of his five daughters' inheritance money. Um, uh, you noted that I was a, an aide to then former Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, in 1996 to 99, he, Netanyahu was the Prime Minister of Israel. He lost his re-election. I got hired in, with a small team of consultants in the fall of 2000 on his comeback campaign. Uh, anybody who knows Netanyahu knows that he didn't come back for nine more years. So I, I, uh, that's really where I got out of the business. Um, every, basically, everybody I worked for uh, in politics, both in the United States and Israel, lost. And uh, some of them, you know, obviously Netanyahu actually obviously went on to do well. And he, he has been the prime minister now uh, since 2009 here and is the longest serving prime minister of Israel in the history of the modern state, but I played no role whatsoever. So, But I gotta believe, I gotta believe, Joel, that that has given you some insights that just feed into the, the your novels that make them come alive because they're so real and captivating around what's really happening in the Middle East today. Well, I hope so, and I, and I think that's true, actually. I mean, I, while I wasn't that helpful to any of these people that I work for, uh, they were incredibly helpful to me, both them as individuals, but also uh, the people that surrounded them um, as, as their political advisors, as their policy advisors. I learned a lot. And so um, I'm happy to talk about the new novel, The Beirut Protocol, but I'd like to take a moment and explain the connection between me failing with Netanyahu <laughs> And and getting into novel writing to begin with. So, okay. if, if, yeah. if, because I think this context is interesting. So, Netanyahu uh, is someone who served in an Israeli special forces unit. He was wounded in combat. His brother, uh, Netanyahu's brother, uh, older brother Yoni, was the commander of a special forces unit who was who was killed uh, in, in battle, uh, rescuing, uh, Israeli hostages from Entebbe, Uganda, when they'd been hijacked there. Netanyahu, uh, as prime minister in all these different roles had been warning American leaders for years, all through the nineties, that the threats that we face in Israel from the forces of radical Islamist terrorists or jihadists, not all of Islam, not 1.8 billion people, but this narrow, but deadly group of extremists, violent extremists, uh, uh, radical Islamists, if American leaders didn't understand the, the threat that was posed by uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, Hamas and Hezbollah and all these different terrorist organizations over here, that Americans risked being blindsided by, by these attacks because Netanyahu kept pointing out that in the religious ideology and the eschatology, the end times theology of these groups, as well as their political uh, views, uh, their worldview, they see Israel as the little Satan in their world. Um, bad, but not as bad as the United States, which is the great Satan in their view. Okay, so Netanyahu's argument to American leaders all through the 1990s was, listen, you, you've got to understand that we're in this together. 
right? The threats that we face in Israel, they're bad. They're very, very serious. But we're just the little guy. We're just the little target. You're, you in the United States, you're the big target. And the, these radicals are coming after you at some point if you don't take them seriously. When I found myself in, 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 at the end of 1990, not, or at the end of 2000, uh, Netanyahu was blocked from running. He was well ahead of his opponent, but uh, through a quirk of Israeli political uh, law, uh, his opponent found a loophole by which Netanyahu couldn't even run. I found myself in January of 2001 with a little consulting firm, another failure, uh, a few clients, a little bit of money in the bank. And I thought, listen, I got to get out of politics. <laughs> I got to go through political detox, Jason. I got to get out. I got to get clean. Okay, maybe every four years I'll need a patch. So I decided, though, but based on just like you said, okay, I may not understand how to win, but I but I understand enough of the political world that maybe I could write the novel that I've wanted to write since I was eight years old. So I sat down and in January of 2001, I began writing a novel called The Last Jihad. Jihad, of course, being a term from the Quran, uh, meaning holy war. So this is the last holy war, the last jihad. Well, the first page of that novel puts you inside the cockpit of a jet plane that's been hijacked by radical Islamist terrorists and it's coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. Now, this is almost nine months before the horrific events of September 11th, 2001. Now, in my novel, The Last Jihad, the arc of the narrative goes from this kamikaze attack by these jihadists into an American city to an American president, my fictional president, deciding we can't just go to war to neutralize these types of terrorists and their training camps in the Middle East, we need to remove the number one state sponsor of terrorism, the number one funder in the Middle East of these types of terrorist cells, and that's Saddam Hussein, who was the president of Iraq. So, so this novel starts with this airplane flying into a city to create death and mayhem and leads to the United States removing Saddam Hussein from power violently. I was finishing The Last Jihad on the morning of September 11th, 2001. So when the novel came out the, the, the next year, uh, in the fall of two, 2002, yes, 9-11 had happened, but United States and the world, but the United States particularly, was in a big, massive national debate over, should we go to war to remove Saddam Hussein from power, for real or not? And, you know, I, I hope that you're viewers and listeners will, will set aside for a moment their own personal political views of whether that war, war was good or bad, right or wrong. Think of it as a novelist. Think of Let's take Iraq out of the equation for a moment. Think of yourself in January of 1941, and you're a young novelist. You've never written a, a novel before, but you think, you know, I, I, I'm going to give this thing a shot. So I don't know. I need an idea. What if, right? Every good thriller begins with what if. So what if an enemy like the Imperial Japanese decide they're going to give a sucker punch to the United States so that they can take over and be in charge of the Pacific. What if, and then you're, you're a novelist, you're thinking, what if they hit us in, in Guam or Midway? Or I don't know, what if they got all the way to Pearl Harbor? What would that look like? What kind of, how might that attack happen? And then if that really happened, what if that led to a global war? What if that led to the United States trying to end that war? by dropping two atomic weapons on the Imperial Japanese. 
And then December 7th, 1941 happens. And President, you, you're listening to the radio and you hear President Franklin Delano Roosevelt say those famous words, this is a day that will live in infamy, right? You're not predicting it. You're not a psychic. You're not a clairvoyant. You're not a prophet. You're just writing a novel, but it starts to play out. That's what my life was like when The Last Jihad released. I did 160 radio, TV, and print and online interviews in less than 60 days. The Last Jihad hit number one on Amazon. It spent 11 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, and no one had ever heard of me before. But suddenly, I had the only novel ever written that, that, that seems so ripped from the headlines. And that's how my, my career as a thriller writer began. So, uh, and that's fascinating with just how that played out. Um, and it sounds like overall that was received incredibly well. I, it was probably a bestseller, uh, the, last, the book you wrote. Um, and now fast forward, you've got the Beirut Protocol. Again, um, some things in this book that I think um, at the same time you could say um, there's some things that you talk about in this book that are sort of what if, and you're wondering, could these things really happen? Um, you t um, I saw a video recently of you on the border, um, near the border there of uh, Lebanon and Israel, and um, talking about uh, the potential of conflict. Um, and tell us about that. I mean, you know, in this, in this book, you describe a war that breaks out in just massive artillery and missiles. And, and we've seen some of that happen um, with Hezbollah a um, few years ago, sending over 4,000 missiles. Um, but talk about kind of today and what's heating up and what the potential really is. Well, the Beirut Protocol is really about um, an American president who's trying to broker the mother of all Middle East peace deals between Israel and the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Now that's fiction so far. That hasn't actually happened. Although just a few months ago, right, or just two months ago, right before uh, the Beirut Protocol was released, uh, Israel's prime minister made a secret trip to Saudi Arabia to meet with the crown prince. So maybe something more is cooking. But in the novel, it's fiction. Well, it, I mean, the, the novel is fiction, but in the Beirut Protocol, the Saudi-Israeli peace deal is almost about to be done. They, they're almost there. But Iran and Iran's terror proxy forces are trying to blow it up. They, they, they don't want Israel and, and the Saudis to make peace. They don't like this movement of Israel to become uh, welcomed in the region and recognized in the region and, and, and a friend of, and, and an ally of the Arab world. Uh, they, they can't stand that, that concept. And so they're thinking, how can, we, how can we blow up this peace deal? Now, in the, in the Beirut Protocol, it opens with my hero, Marcus Riker. Marcus is a former uh, Marine who was decorated for valor in combat in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Uh, Marcus works in a previous book uh, for the United States Secret Service. Uh, he rises to the top of the food chain in the Secret Service, the elite presidential protective detail. He's the best of the best. 
but some tragedies happen in his life um, and he has to leave government service. But, but eventually he gets drafted almost against his uh, will back into U.S. government service, working for the Central Intelligence Agency. And now, as you say, Marcus is up on the border of Israel and Lebanon, trying to make sure with a team of other U.S. and Israeli officials, experts, uh, is everything ready for a U.S. Secretary of State who's arriving, who wants a briefing on, on the threat that Iran poses via their terror proxy force known as Hezbollah which is essentially taken over, uh, uh, now controls Lebanon. And Hezbollah is, a, is the worst terrorist force on the planet in the sense that it has killed more, Israel, uh, more Americans than any terrorist organization in the world except Al-Qaeda. Now, Hezbollah controls Lebanon and, 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 and uses Lebanon as a forward operating base against Israel. Uh, there are 150,000 or so missiles built in Iran, based in Lebanon, controlled by Tehran, but, but activated and you know, maintained by Hezbollah. And they're all aimed at us here in Israel, 150,000 missiles. Now you just alluded to the fact that 15 years ago, Israel did fight a war with Hezbollah in Lebanon. And at that time, Hezbollah fired 4,000 missiles at Israel in a 34-day period. In this novel, the Beirut Protocol, the fear is Hezbollah could fire 4,000 missiles a day at Israel if such a war were to erupt. And in chapter one, the war erupts. A terrorist attack on the border. Marcus and his team are in a firefight with a Hezbollah terror cell. Marcus and two of his teammates are captured and, as you say, dragged into a terror tunnel, uh, dr dragged deep behind enemy lines, tortured, and above ground, this massive missile war between Israel and, and, and Hezbollah in Lebanon erupts. And it is a worst case scenario. But basically for the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, nobody's been talking about the threat in Lebanon, unless you're in this part of the world. But in America, people don't really talk about it. But just in recent days, Jason, uh, the leaders of Hezbollah are threatening a war with Israel. Israeli leaders at the highest levels are warning Hezbollah, don't go there. Uh, Israel's warning Iran, don't let Hezbollah go that, down this path. But I'll just wrap that up to say uh, it, it, Beirut Protocol does feel ripped maybe from tomorrow's headlines. We pray that doesn't happen. We pray for peace. Yeah. The fact is at this moment, as you and I talk, experts tell me the most likely scenario for a new war, a big war, in the Middle East in 2021 would be in the Lebanon theater. So uh, it's fiction, this novel is fiction, but it, it, but it, it, it turns out to be a little closer to the mark um, than you know, even I might have guessed. Yeah, what I love about the, um, the book is not only just the scenarios and, and the thrill of just wondering what's gonna happen and see all this play out, but how you bring reality to that. And just speaking to this topic that we're talking about right now, I'm, I'm looking at the book right here at uh, page 381, and I love the way that the protagonist is questioning, wondering, lamenting a little bit about what's going on between is Israel and Lebanon. It, it, and you write this, you say, um, then there was the senseless missile war raging between Israel and Hezbollah. 
all of it driven by Iran. So many people were being killed on both sides of the border. So many homes and businesses were being damaged and destroyed. Hadn't the people of Israel and Lebanon suffered enough? Wasn't there already more than enough bitterness and bile to last several generations? What good can come of all of this? And you just sense in, in that, and I think it's where a lot of um, Americans who don't really understand what's happening in that region are looking at this and probably asking those same questions, just like this protagonist, an American, wondering, all of this happening, you know, and, and you go on right after that to talk about Lebanon used to be this Switzerland in the Middle East, um, this area of peace and, and um, prosperity, and then war has just ripped it apart. And uh, why don't, and it's questioning, why doesn't uh, Lebanon kick these guys out? Hezbollah, why, why don't they just throw them out? I mean, what do you say to that in today, in real world? Why don't they? Oh, you just, uh, how much time did you say we had for the interview? <laughs> you just raised a very painful question. You know, I, I dedicated the book, Jason, to uh, my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law, Dan, uh, was born and raised in Beirut. He, uh, his mother is American. His father is a Lebanese Arab. Uh, they were from a Christian background. They, they weren't born again believers at that time in, in Lebanon. Uh, but in the 1970s, uh, a, a horrific civil war erupted. You're right. Uh, Lebanon was so beautiful. Um, it was the Switzerland of the Middle East. Beirut was considered the, the, the Paris of the Middle East. It was not only beautiful and prosperous, it was peaceful and it was multicultural and multi-ethnic and multi-faith. It was. It, there were Christians and there were Jews and there were Muslims and there were people of different backgrounds and and they all seemed to get along. It was it was a little bit of a paradise in the Middle East. And then something very wicked erupted in the 1970s with the Civil War. The Civil War created so much chaos that a terrorist group known as the Palestine Liberation Organization, headed up by Yasser Arafat, which would that had been kicked out of Jordan for trying to take over the country of Jordan, they got kicked out and they moved to Lebanon and they began the PLO trying and Arafat began to try to take over Lebanon. And they used Lebanon as a forward operating base, a, a, a platform to, to fire rockets and fire, uh, you know, uh, mortars and to launch terror attacks into Israel so often that Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982. And that created what we call here in Hebrew, a, a balagan, like it's just a big, crazy, you know, disaster. And Israel was kind of bogged down in Lebanon for 18 years, trying to trying to pacify it, trying to make it peaceful and calm like it had been once. When you look at Lebanon today, um, I, I wanted to dedicate this novel to my brother-in-law because he grew up in that mess until the family decided they had to escape. And by God's grace, they were able to get to the United States. And, uh, and this is where my brother-in-law, Dan, came to faith, a personal faith in Jesus Christ, met my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, um, and they got married, and they were beautiful, wonderful children, and 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 this is how I know his story. And I've met many dear Lebanese people over the years, and you know, I would say that in many ways, the current Lebanon, it, it's like um, it's like a haunted house. You can see 
you know, the echoes and the remnants of the, the, the you know, yeah, it's like an echo of, of a once glorious, beautiful, stately place, but it's just haunted by demons now. And I don't mean the people. I mean the people of Lebanon are being held hostage. First, they were being held hostage by the Palestine Liberation Organization, which basically just took over their country and used it for their own purposes. But it brought devastation to the people of Lebanon. And then when they got kicked out, uh, the PLO eventually went to Tunisia. But then Iran created a new terror organization, invented it, Hezbollah. And Hezbollah has taken over the country. And the people of Lebanon trapped. They're, 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 they're poor. Their country's falling apart. Um, it, it's such a mess. And, um, and frankly, the people of Lebanon, the government of Lebanon, simply does not have the strength or the money or the will to successfully kick out Hezbollah, which is the most feared and strongest of Iran's terror proxy forces. So they're trapped. And until that nation is liberated, I don't know. And I don't know how they're going to be liberated. Ultimately, maybe by God himself. But at the moment, there's nobody talking about coming to rescue the people of Lebanon. And it's it's very, very sad. Mm. Well, your, your, your book does a tremendous job with just this backdrop of all the tensions that are happening um, there on, on the border with Lebanon, but with Saudi Arabia, with Iran, um, and all that's going on in that region, um, it's, it's really um, brings to light a lot of those complexities. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about those in, in real life here. Um, so um, we've just um, come out of an election. We've uh, elected a new president. But I want to look back a little bit um, to the policies of President Trump. And I'd really love to hear your perspective because, and we didn't say this at the beginning, but you've alluded to it. You lived in Israel with your family. And so um, you've made a decision. You're there. You um, just established um, not long ago uh, your um, citizenship in Israel. And so- Jason, uh, I like to say that because we're dual U.S. Israeli citizens, uh, we're citizens of both places. That means we get to vote twice. So it's sort of like living in Chicago. Hey, yeah. <laughs> and other uh, places. Um, yeah. No. So we've been here about seven years now, and uh, you're right. We we um, we didn't just come to to visit or to work here. We came to be citizens. Um, I'm Jewish on my father's side, uh, Gentile on my mom's side. By faith, we're followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, and the Bible says that the Jews, you know, he's going to keep calling the Jews back from all over the nations where we were exiled for 2000 years almost and bring us back to the land of Israel as he recreates the state and rebuilds the ancient ruins. And we are now part of that flow of prophetic history. It's it's both exciting and it's incredibly challenging. Uh, life in Israel is hard, harder than uh, the northern Virginia where we um you know, be, we're raising our family and living in the Washington D.C. area. Uh, it's very challenging. At, at two, we have four sons, um, two of which have served in the Israeli military. Uh, one is now finished and uh, back in the United States and uh, going to Bible college, and one is literally finishing up this week um, in an elite special forces unit. And uh, learning the language is hard. Serving in the army is hard. Uh, 
the taxes, the, 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 the politics, lots of crazy stuff here. But God's doing something special. He's rebuilding something just as he said he would. More Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus as Messiah than ever before uh, since the first century. Um, more Jews here in Israel and around the world are, are interested in hearing the gospel than ever before. Um, and, and so there's a lot of exciting, good things that are happening, but it's also a very tough place to live. But I, I will tell you, Jason, it's a target-rich environment if you're a thriller writer. Okay. There's no so, no shortage of stories uh, to write about. And one of the things I do, you know, look, if you're a thriller writer, you have to thrill. Okay, You can't just say, oh, I'm going to, you know, I want to educate people uh, or I'm going to weave, sp- uh, you know, spiritual journeys through your books. Yeah, I do both of those. But if I don't capture you on page one and pull you in and, and get your heart rate spiking and your pulse pounding and, and I have to hold you and pull you through, you know, a 450 page book. And if I lose you at any moment, I haven't done my job. What I need you to do is not only keep reading, but I have short chapters. They're they're short, they're intense, they're cliffhanger endings. And you know, it's suddenly two o'clock in the morning and you're like, oh man, I got to go to work. I got to go to school. I got to get the kids ready. But you're like, I really want to know what happens next Oh, this chapter short. I'll just I'll just read this one, and then you know an hour goes by. Look, these are you're, you're describing my experience reading your book. By the way, what's that? You're descri- you're describing my experience reading your book. Good. Well, yeah. good. You're a nice person, and so you probably don't do this, but I like it when people start cursing me on Twitter or Facebook or whatever social media platform, and they're like, "How dare you? I, it's six o'clock in the morning. The sun is coming up. I got to go to work. I got to go to school, and I got to get the kids ready. And I've been reading your freaking book all night, and I'm just uh, good. That's that's what a thriller writer does. That's my job. Now, if I do that, it earns me the right to do some other thing. And one of the things people have enjoyed about my books is not just oh gosh, what, God forbid, what terrible scenario is he playing out in the book that could take place tomorrow, but People all know that the Middle East is a very important place to American national security, economic security, you know, you know, just the, every part of our life from our from the price of gas to the way we go to the airport. I mean, so much of it, you know, the, the number of troops we send overseas, the taxes we pay, it relates to the Middle East. And yet people know it's important, but they they don't want to read a 900 page nonfiction book about the history of the Middle East. It just seems so boring and blah, blah, blah. You know, I just, so if I, if you can read a high speed thriller or not even read it, you can download this book on your phone on audible or something. And you know, the the narrator will read it to you. (laughs) You can just have them, you know, when you're in the car, when you're going for a run, when you're washing dishes, you can be listening to the baby protocol and you don't even think you're learning something. You're just, absorbing the story, but you are learning something because that is part of my goal. And in most of the books, there's some sort of faith journey because when you're dealing with life and death, it always struck me as odd when I read a Tom Clancy novel or something where people are dying or they're risking their lives. Isn't anybody worried about what happens the the one second after they take their last breath on this planet? Nobody seems worried in thrillers, but that's the most important question in the world. So if I just go write a gospel track, nobody's going to, nobody's going to read that. I mean, you know, some people will, but very few. So I have to earn it. I have to own it. I have to, I have to make it work. But if I do, 
several other things are going on as well. And your protagonist, Marcus Riker, he is a Christian, and you see him struggle through some of what's happening and some of the moral decisions uh, that he has to make. And is this going to be Christ honoring or not? And so um, it's not overpowering of the, the storyline, but you see that in him and, um, and, and That's right. you experience those decision points uh, that he has to make along the way. Yeah. So is a, let's, is a, let's is talk a, a little a, bit. But he, but he's also a former Secret Service agent. He does sir, Secret Service agents don't talk much. And he's not a guy, He's not a preacher, but these values and these core principles are important to him. And he lives in a very dangerous, very messy world. And he's got to make decisions that you and I almost never have to make about life and death and taking the life of another person. But uh, he's willing to do it. He's a trained killer. But by training and personality, he'd prefer to be protecting. He's not a he's not an assassin. But yes, I, I I take this guy and I give him a deep faith. But I also put him in very very bad positions. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, you know politics, and I'd love to get your thoughts on President Trump's policies uh, in the Middle East and whether or not, in your opinion. Um, overall that uh, those benefited and prospered the region or um, uh, whether or not they had negative effects. Um, maybe give a quick synopsis of how you see that. Donald Trump was a very complicated uh, person and uh, an, an American president. I had been, just to be completely candid, I had been a never Trumper uh, during the 2016 campaign until a few days before the election when I had to make a final decision you know, to either vote for him or for her. And I decided to vote for him, uh, even though I had some very serious reservations. I was very pleasantly surprised, I will tell you, over the course of four years about how well President Trump did on a whole range of issues that mattered to me as an evangelical, as a conservative, um, as an, as an American and an Israeli. Um, with regards to the Middle East, he, he was one of the most effective American presidents in in, in modern times. Uh, I, I, I probably, I would say, and I said, I, I did eventually meet him in the Oval Office. We had a very interesting meeting with the president, the vice president, uh, Mike Pence, uh, Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and then National Security Advisor, John uh, uh, Boy, uh, uh, Bolton, John Bolton, sorry, blank there. Um, and I told the president, look, you're going to go down as the most pro-Israel and the most pro-life president in American history. And I didn't see it coming. I told him flat out that I'd been a never Trumper and that I'd changed my mind. But but look, here's just a few things that the president did. Number one, he was the strongest pro-Israel supporter. I mean, just strengthened the relationship between the United States and Israel more than any other American president. Two, he announced and recognized that Jerusalem is the capital of the state of Israel and has been since the time of King David, 3,000 years ago. That's where we live right now. That's where I'm speaking to you from the Israeli capital of Jerusalem. Uh, then President Trump moved the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv on the coast here to Jerusalem, where it should be in the capital. Uh, President Trump recognized the sovereignty that Israel has over the Golan Heights, the mountain range that overlooks Lebanon and Syria, two of our most dangerous enemies. Um, uh, it, it, President Trump sold uh, F-35 stealth fighter jets, the most advanced fighter jets in the, in the American arsenal, to Israel 
Uh, he helped President Trump helped broker not just one, not two, not three, but four Arab-Israeli peace deals, historic deals called the Abraham Accords between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. Um, what's more, one other thing, I mean, there, there's many, but one more thing is that the president um, recognized that the Iran nuclear deal that President Obama and Vice President Biden had organized and put together a number of years ago was, was deeply flawed and incredibly dangerous. And, and, the United, and, and President Trump removed the United States from that deal and began to apply maximum pressure on the terror masters in Tehran to try to bring them to their knees to give up their nuclear and terror ambitions. And uh, all of those things were incredibly impressive. And when I had a chance to sit with him, among the other things that we discussed, I, I thanked him for those specific things and encouraged him to keep going. Now, obviously, we have a big question. Where, in what direction is President Biden going to lead in the Middle East? And what would your uh, recommendation be to him? What would you like to see uh, if you could meet with President Biden in the Oval Office and suggest some things to him and his administration? What is it that you would emphasize? Well, first, I, I would tell him what I told President Trump, which is, uh, while I didn't, you know, I wasn't an active supporter of you, I, from the moment you were inaugurated, I've been praying for you and your family and your team every single day. And I would encourage all faith voters uh, to, uh, to be doing that, to be praying for President Biden, um, especially if you disagree with him. Uh, and I would tell the president I'm doing that. Number two, I would tell President uh, Biden that... Um, I don't consider that just because he and his predecessor, uh, Barack Obama, uh, made some very flawed choices, in my view, in the Middle East, that that somehow puts President Biden in a box that he can't ever get out of. In other words, I'd like to see that he has learned from the mistakes of the uh, past administration and are going to course correct and, in fact, build on the really positive things that President Trump did. The Abraham Accords, for example, that, that uh, I think that President Biden should be trying to broker what I write about in the, uh, you know, in the novel, which is the Saudi-Israeli peace deal. That's that's I think that's possible. He should do it. But I would specifically say on Iran, uh, President Biden needs to be very, very careful. He should not be so desperate to get into a, a new nu nuclear deal with Iran's terror masters that he ignores uh, the type of terrorism, subversion, very, very dangerous behavior of the Iranian regime. And I think what we're seeing is Iran is testing Biden. I think they want that. The Iranians are very desperate to get um, economic sanctions lifted off of them because their economy is crumbling. They are suffocating. They are asphyxiating because of the Trump uh economic sanctions. That's good. That Biden should use that to that type of leverage to bring Iran's government to give up a nuclear program it does not need, a ballistic missile program to reach America it does not need, and, and, and the funding of terrorism all over the region it, that it shouldn't be a part of. Just because Iran's desperate doesn't mean that Biden is, isn't desperate, and I'm concerned, Mr. President. I would say 
I'm concerned you're looking more determined to get Iran into a deal than to say, listen, Iranians, it, you need to give up these behaviors and then we're happy to let up on you economically, but we're not going to be suckers. And I'm concerned that right now um, the Biden team is, uh, is not doing a good job in the Middle East. To what extent do you think just swinging policies um, from one end to the other might uh, uh, weaken the U.S.'s position in the Middle East? Well, there's a tremendous risk of that. And, uh, you know, maybe this seems a little narrow, but I'll just give you an example. Uh, President Trump and his team uh, designated one of Iran's terror proxy forces the Houthi rebel terrorists in Yemen, the, the Trump team put the Houthis on the foreign terrorist organization list that the State Department publishes. And that came with sanctions and restrictions um, because the Houthis are terrorists. They are firing missiles at our, at our ally, uh, the Saudis, even into the Saudi capital of Riyadh. This is terrible. So, but And Trump was right to put the Houthis on the terror list, but Biden immediately took them off. Now, has there been a change in behavior? No, the, the Houthis have fired dozens and dozens and dozens of more missiles at Saudi Arabia. And where are those missiles coming from? The Houthis don't build missiles. It, it's, a, it's a backward society, unfortunately, in Yemen. Those missiles are coming from Iran, and we know that because the markings are still on the missiles when they land in Saudi Arabia. So why take... An, an Iranian-funded, trained, armed, supplied terror force, proxy force, off the terrorist list. You're sending the wrong message. You're telling the Iranian government that we're not really so worried. That's the, that's a big mistake. And that's just one example. Um, and the Iranians, are, I'm concerned they're smelling fear. They're smelling blood in the water. They're smelling that... Maybe this Biden team is not so strong. They're not like the Trump team. And I'm not saying the Trump team did everything right, um, or, or, the, or at least the, the president did everything right. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that uh, President Trump was far stronger, far more successful in the Middle East than, than I had expected. And I had the opportunity at least to tell him, uh, thank you for that and to keep up the good work. Um, but I'm praying that the Biden team would wake up and smell the Starbucks because they are going down the wrong road so far. Yeah, there's a lot to um, consider and think about. And I think, um, you know, as, as we at My Faith Votes try and draw people to think well about the issues, uh, I love this conversation because um, we're able to um, drive the conversation around foreign policy. A lot of times we're focused on what's happening at home around uh, the Equality Act or, you know, what's happening um, around election integrity or, or abortion um, in that realm. But here issues, very, very important. important issues, incredibly important issues, but so are these issues around foreign policy. And it's great to think through some of this with you. I want to turn a little bit to um, what's happening uh, on Tuesday, um, March 23rd. We have elections in Israel. Um, what do you see is at stake with those elections um, at stake for Israel, at stake maybe for the United States and how Americans might, you know, what should Americans be thinking about and concerned about um, related to those elections? Well, I'm smiling a little bit, Jason, because uh, Israel's the only real democracy 
in the Middle East. And that must be why we've had four rounds of elections in two years. Okay, so uh, we're my faith votes. Oh, my goodness. We're we're voting all the time here. I've uh, uh, yeah, our family has voted more than any of our Palestinian friends have ever voted in their lives because they've only had one election in their uh, in their lives. So um, here's the short version. Um, please do be praying for God's sovereignly, uh, you know, orchestrate, superintend the elections here, because the, the big fight here is over the question of whether Prime Minister Netanyahu has had enough time as the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel, the modern state of Israel, uh, has he had enough time and now it's time for him to go and we need a change? Or no, 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 the, the situation uh, for whatever Netanyahu's flaws, there's still so many dangerous challenges ahead of us that we need such an experienced captain, you know, at the helm of the ship. And that's the question. And that's why we've had four rounds of elections in the last two years, because Netanyahu each round cannot seem to persuade the country to give him enough seats in his own party and in his coalition to give him a stable majority government in the parliament. Okay. In fact, his support keeps eroding. Netanyahu's support keeps eroding. So he, he's, he's feeling, you know, honestly, it looks like he's feeling a little desperate and each election he can't do it. And so he finds another reason, you know, six months, eight months, a year later to find a way to trigger a new election. But, you know, so that's the question. Are we heading into a post Netanyahu era where he's off the stage? Now I'm not here on you know on your program to 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 to, to give an answer whether that's the right or wrong thing. I'm telling you that's the big issue that people are wrestling with here, and it's very possible uh, that Netanyahu will not make it through this election. Now he's a he's a shrewd political cat, Benjamin Netanyahu. I had the privilege of working for him 20 years ago, as I mentioned briefly for a few months. I'm not close to him personally. I have not met with him in 10 years. So I, I, I you know, I put my cards on the table. Um, I'm not a partisan in this discussion, but I am, you know, but I did work for him once. And I'm telling you, he's an incredibly smart, shrewd political cat. I would not count him out. But I would say that Netanyahu is facing his most difficult and dangerous election since 1999 when he lost. And uh, a lot can happen in these next hours and days, and even when the election happens, then you have coalition uh, negotiations, and that could take weeks. Uh, it could even take a month. So, and but what comes out of that? Do we get? Do we have to go to a fifth election, a sixth election? You know, is this never ending, or will someone emerge, either Netanyahu with a stable government, or with somebody new? And I will tell you, even though even all the people that want change, you know. You know the majority in Israel want Netanyahu to go, but parliaments work in a different way than, a, than an American republic. But all that to say, even if we get a new prime minister, we just have to remember that even though Netanyahu has some tremendous strength and some tremendous weaknesses, the, there's going to be a cliff that Israel's going to drop off of between Netanyahu as a, he's a world leader. He knows every leader on the planet. He and he is a very forceful and 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 shrewd customer, a political operator. The next person is going to be, you know, not that. It takes a long time to become a world leader instead of a prime minister of a small country of nine million people. 
right? So it's a steep learning curve for the next person and the threats are very, very high. And that's why even though the majority of the country is against Netanyahu, it's still possible that Netanyahu will eke this thing out. Why? Because people may decide in the end, uh, I see his flaws, but maybe we still need him. And uh, I, I, I couldn't possibly predict how this will play out this week. I understand it's uh, fairly tight right now in the polls in the elections. So That's right. And then we have a website that we started called All Israel News. You can find it at allisrael.com. Or if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, um, you'll see me linking to it and mentioning it a lot. But All Israel News is tracking all of it. And we're doing it for the world's 600 million evangelicals who want fair coverage and accurate coverage and some place to go that they say, when I'm interested in Israel and the rest of the Middle East, where do I go? Who do I trust to give me accurate news and analysis? What's happening and what does it mean? All Israel News, that's what I started last September. And it's been very exciting. Uh, over a million views last month, uh, uh, interviews, exclusive interviews with many of the top leaders in this country and region. So it's exciting to cover an election for the first time, and we're doing that at All Israel News. So give us give us that uh, website again, just so we sure. get it right. Sure. So the website is called All Israel News, but the website is called allisrael.com. Allisrael.com. Okay. Uh, at My Faith Votes, we encourage Christians to do three things, to pray, pray for our leaders, pray for the issues, um, uh, current events, to think biblically about those issues, understand what's happening through the, a biblical lens, and to act. And our primary action is voting. We are encouraging everyone to go vote, but what other actions can people take in their faith journey to really bring the influence of their faith into the communities in the world in which we live? And so I love this, allisrael.com. People can go there and really get informed and help them think well about what's happening in the world. That's right. So, and it's a nonprofit uh, uh, organization, All Israel News. And we have a sister site called All Arab News. Where we're covering all that. And they're cross-linked. But the key is that we're nonpartisan. And so we really cover everybody and we cover them fairly. And if someone's doing something good, I, I would say we cover politics here like like you would want to cover football during a game, right? In, in America, you don't really see the commentators uh, rooting for one team or another. Now, if, if somebody does a great play, they'll, they'll, they'll say that's, that's awesome. If they blow it, they'll, they won't be afraid to say it. I really think political coverage should be much more like, you know, a Monday night football game or a Sunday afternoon game, uh, you know, calling for baseball, calling the balls and strikes and the airs than the commentators in the booth saying, you know, I will never be for, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers under any circumstances. It's never going to happen. They're horrible people. I just don't believe that's nobody would watch football. That's a whole nother issue. But uh, <laughs> how many people are watching professional sports in America? But that's yeah. a different set of reasons. Well, right? Okay. So, so I have something else that you're talking about how they might, um, uh, make a call or, or root or cheer on what just happened. So I want to bring a current event um, to the table. And, and we just had Pope Francis visit Iraq, um, four-day visit, met with the Ayatollah, um, and had um, some good conversations. And out of that, the Ayatollah um, 
confirmed his concern that Christian citizens of Iraq, and this is a quote, should live like all Iraqis in peace and security and with their full constitutional rights. Um, is that to be um, trusted and believed? Um, how, how should we interpret that um, as we come out of that meeting and, and hear some of that news? Well, Jason, as we wrap up this interview, I appreciate that question. I, I've traveled to Iraq uh, four times um, over the years, uh, doing research for books, and uh, but also we have a nonprofit uh, organization called the Joshua Fund that, that invests, we've invested more than $50 million uh, in strengthening the church in Israel and the Palestinian territories and in five neighboring Arab countries, of which Iraq is one of them. And I think it's a positive statement that the Ayatollah al-Sistani made to Pope Francis. Look, I have different theologies, obviously, than the Shia Ayatollah, right? And I have different theology than uh, Pope Francis. But I would say that when the head of the entire Shia Islamic movement inside Iraq can sit peaceably with the head of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, that, that is important uh, because Iraq has been the epicenter of genocide against Christians uh, for many, many years, especially under the, uh, the, the caliphate of ISIS or the Islamic State. So that was another, by the way, great thing that President Trump and his team did, which was destroy the ISIS caliphate and liberate tens of millions of people in Iraq and Syria who were living under that, that reign of terror. So we were seeing Christians slaughtered in Iraq and Syria. We were seeing Christians being driven out, being forcibly uh, converted to Islam or, or, or being executed, crucified, you know, beheaded for not doing so. And, and so things are beginning to settle down. I, I'm, you know, I don't want to paint a rosy picture, but, but, but it's progress that the head of Shia Islam in Iraq, which is the majority faith in Iraq, um, is saying that we need, you know, that, that Muslims and Christians should live together in peace and, 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 should, and that Christian minorities should be respected. You know, there was about 1.2 million people in Iraq during the days of Saddam Hussein who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. I can't say that they were all born again. I don't know. But 1.2 million Christians or so, and now there are fewer than 300,000 in Iraq. Many killed, many have fled. So uh, we got to pray for the people of Iraq and pray for the church in Iraq to be strong, even with persecution. That's one of the things that I do when I take off my novelist hat and I focus on the Joshua Fund, which my wife and I founded and which I'm the chairman of. And we built a great team, and we—that's uh, something people can learn more about. How can they? How can you be involved in helping uh, financially as well as prayerfully the the believers in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, the Palestinian Authority, and of course here in Israel? And that's at our website JoshuaFund.com. Again, JoshuaFund.com. Thanks for joining this episode of the My Faith Votes podcast with Joel Rosenberg. His love for Israel is a reminder of the verse 
in Genesis chapter 12 that says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. The conversation with Joel is a great reminder that we need to stay informed about what's happening in the Middle East, abroad, outside of the borders of our country, that we can interpret better what's happening in the world through a biblical lens. I'd like to invite you to explore a number of topics through a biblical lens, not as a Republican, not as a Democrat, but as a follower of Christ. You can visit myfaithvotes.org and get equipped to think well, think biblically, so that when you do vote, you're casting a vote that is honoring God. Thanks for listening to this episode of the My Faith Votes podcast.